hesitance and thanks be to God. <laughs> I want to say uh, thanks for inviting me through your pastor to be here. I've got lots of friends. I've already greeted most of them, haven't said hi to the Millers yet, but it's kind of fun to be here. Uh, my family moved here from Southern California uh, 37 some years ago, 36 years at least, and uh, we were seven years here in Wheaton, uh, 10 in Naperville at the Covenant Church there, and 19 of the last, the last 19 years in Hinsdale. Now we're residents of Michigan City, Indiana, and in the process, the last couple years, I got to know your pastor, Nate. Uh, we graduated from the same seminary here in Lombard, and uh, I became his mentor as he goes through the ordination process into the covenant. And uh, we both like national parks. He's getting a, a much faster start at checking them off, and I'm, I'm really way behind. So that's, a, that's kind of a retirement bucket list for us. And I'm also here to commend you for going through the Minor Prophets. I hope it hasn't uh, cleared out the numbers or fogged up the understanding of God and His Word. Good for you to kind of go through that part of the Bible we often don't scuff up or mar with our fingerprints. I have to let you know that it's, it's new to me too often to even be preaching from this text. But I commend you and uh, commend to you your pastor and this process of studying God's word. So let's pray for God's help as we begin. God, we want to have you reveal yourself truly to us today. We want to hear through your spirit words that will challenge but also encourage us. I pray that uh, the book of Nahum might become a little more familiar as we Work with it this day, in Christ's name, amen. It's pretty common for people out on the streets in the world, away from the church, to come to the conclusion that the God of the Bible is an angry God. And I don't want anything or as little as possible to do with him. Now, they may say, the God of the New Testament, Jesus, he's a pretty nice guy. He's loving, he's gentle, he laid down his life for others. And I, I like the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament, forget him. And they just see this dichotomy between anger in the Old Testament and love in the New Testament. I don't think that's there, but I can see where it comes from. And my hope is that we don't divide God into testaments or into good and bad parts as if we have that right. My desire is to let God's word speak to us. So I'm not surprised when someone out there away from God's word who probably hasn't read it, but just heard some glimpses or spots here and there about God. I don't, I'm not surprised when they come to the conclusion that the God of the Old Testament is an angry God. The God of the New Testament I can kind of tolerate. The problem is when that's an attitude within the church. We've got God's word. We can see it pretty plainly. And we're still uncomfortable with some of the parts we have there. 
Recently, it's shown up in the controversy around the hymn we just sang, In Christ Alone. It was written in 2001, and it has a great storyline of Christ's ministry, his coming, his death, his resurrection, his coming again. It's all wrapped up in those verses. But in the portion around his death is the one line, the wrath of God was satisfied. Many Christians took issue with that. The wrath of God was satisfied with the death of Christ. And there may be multiple reasons why they were uncomfortable with that. But a Baptist hymnal published in 2010 took the liberty to change that line to the love of God was magnified. It sounds reasonable. Certainly, that's true of the cross. But they didn't get permission to change those words. And when a Presbyterian hymnal, three years later, went to the writers, Getty and Townend, to get permission to make that change from the wrath of God was satisfied to the love of God was magnified, Getty and Townend said, no. We want the words the way we created them. And so the Presbyterians left that hymn out of their new hymnal. A lot of Christian churches, you may even visit them, who knows, it may have even been sung here, will continue to put those revised, unapproved lyrics to In Christ Alone. But you can see some of us within the church, I believe, are uncomfortable with speaking of God's wrath and it being somehow satisfied in the death of Christ. I'm glad for one thing in this controversy, and that is that we're paying attention to the words we sing. Isn't that good? That's a good thing. We ought to. There's a lot of theology in the hymns we sing. And sometimes even theological controversies were being battled within our hymns. So pay attention. That's a good thing. It's probably not a good thing to just change somebody else's words. And it's certainly, listen to me here, it's not a good thing to think we can create God in our own image. If we're uncomfortable with him, let's just take that part that we're uncomfortable and tuck it aside or maybe minimize it. I think in what I'm talking to you about this morning, Nahum has something to say to us. If we're paying attention, the challenge is um, we don't read the book of Nahum. Um, my hope is that some of you have this week. I know that's a challenge here in the church, and that's good. Just three chapters. If you haven't read it, I'll encourage you to read it all a bit later. Um, we're not reading it, and I have to confess to you, I haven't preached it. See, I, I'm not just pointing the finger at you. I looked in my file, and the only time I've really referred to the book of Nahum is when doing Bible survey in adult and, and youth classes where I've swept through the Bible, and I'll just touch down on a couple verses in Nahum, and I usually pick out the nice ones. And, uh, and that was it. So that's my confession. We're in this. We're going to make a difference today. We're going to say, this comes to an end. We're going to pay attention to Nahum, see if he can help us with our image of God. 
and, uh, and we'll let Pastor Paul take a first stab at preaching it. Before I go to the first chapter, I want to give you a little background. Nahum is living and ministering in the 7th century before Christ. So think 600s B.C. He's ministering in a time when Assyria, with its capital, Nineveh, uh, Nineveh is referred to like we refer to Washington, D.C. It's the capital of the United States. But Assyria was the superpower in the world in that time. Had been for 400 years. The dominant superpower. They were the ones that the whole world looked to. And Nahum directs his, his message to this group in Nineveh. Nineveh, you may already recall from your study of the Minor Prophets, has had a prophet come to them. Do you remember his name? Jonah. Jonah came to Nineveh in 750 about. <clears throat> Brought a message of repentance, and Nineveh responded positively. It was disappointing, I think, to Jonah, but they responded positively. But they have slipped from that positive repentance and recognition of God. They slipped considerably so that in 722 BC, they attacked and scattered the northern kingdom of Israel. It's not there anymore because of Assyria and Nineveh. And at the same time, Assyria went south to the southern kingdom of Judah and made them subservient to them so that Judah, although they have their own country, their own king, they are servants to the leadership of Assyria. And Assyria has wielded its power all through the Middle East, not just with Israel in the north and Judah in the south, but all the way through. They, in order to gain their victories throughout the whole sweep of what we know as the Fertile Crescent from southern Egypt all the way through the Holy Land around to Babylon, they controlled that whole area, as I said, for 400 years. In order to do that, they wielded ruthless, cruel control. They did things to their enemies that I can't even talk about. Even with the kids out, I would turn this sermon into an R-rated sermon. I can't describe what they would do to their enemies. It was indescribable. And it's hard to imagine. But in the midst of that kind of reputation, here's Nahum, the prophet, delivering a message about Nineveh's destruction. God is going to destroy you. God is against you, Nineveh. Can you imagine the risk Nahum was taking to his own life, his family, his well-being? Judah was pretty excited about the news. That's good news. Thanks. The rest of the world around probably couldn't even imagine that. For 400 years, they've been the superpower. There's no way they're going down. But Nahum stuck his neck out and delivers this message, this poetic message, this vivid, dramatic message. You need to read chapters 2 and 3. We only read chapter 1 because in 2 and 3, he gives this vivid description of the attack on Nineveh, 
the plundering of Nineveh, the demise, destruction of Nineveh. It's going down, and it did go down. In 612 BC, the Babylonians, the Medes, the Scythians, all ganged up on Nineveh and, and destroyed that city in such a way it never recovered. In fact, it was 2,500 years before we even found the ruins of Nineveh. It was discovered in 1850 about. Unbelievable. Just wiped off the face of the earth. Nineveh was gone. What Nahum said was coming happened, even though hardly anybody could have believed it. I want you to read chapters 2 and 3, get a little bit of the history. What I want to focus on is chapter 1. Chapter 1 gives us a picture of God that I think we need to be reminded of. One that's quite balanced and quite accurate. And so often we can kind of shy away from. And so it's in Nahum 1, if you'd like to follow along. I just want to kind of skip through and explain a couple of things that are going on as I look at this. But I think you'll see real quickly the first aspect of God that we look at is the fact that there's anger in this God. Let's, let's come to grips with that. It says in verse 2, the Lord, and that's a reference to the covenant-keeping God of Israel and of all creation, the Lord is jealous. And right away we're, we're concerned because we know our jealousy. It's selfish. It's sinful. God's like that. Now, you need to remind yourself there is an appropriate jealousy, a jealousy of a, of a heartbroken spouse whose spouse is, is playing around on him or her. And that threat to the marriage needs to have a strong response. I try to imagine, can you imagine talking to a man, I'll, I'll just say it specifically, to a man whose wife is having an affair and the man knows it, and he really doesn't care. It's, it really doesn't make any difference. Can you imagine that? That man should be jealous. That man should be angry. And that's a righteous kind of jealousy and anger. And that's what the Lord is expressing here. And avenging. Notice he takes vengeance. Who? On his foes, his enemies. He takes vengeance on them. The next word is wrath at the end of verse 2. He's filled with wrath in the beginning and then he vents it against his enemies. I want to back away. We've now seen jealous, avenging, and wrath filled. I don't believe that this is at the core of who God is. I believe this is his reluctant, response to our rebellion against him. Do you want me to say that again? I do not believe this angry, avenging, wrathful side of God is at the core of his being. We've brought this out because of our rebellion against him. Any rebellion brings this out. And it's part of his love. Because he loves us so much, he does not want to see this brokenness, this sin, this leaving him out. 
Isaiah refers to this work as his strange work. I love that. His alien work. It's not, it's not basic to his character. He's driven to it by us in our sin. And that's why in the next verse we read, the Lord is slow to anger. He really doesn't want to be there, but we keep pushing him in that direction. But he is great in power. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. And we see that power as Nahum goes on in the whirlwind, in the storm, in the clouds. In verse 4, in the drought. In verse 5, in the earthquake. So then you come to the conclusion in verse 6. Who can stand against that kind of a God? His indignation, his fierce anger, his wrath. Who can stand in their sin and brokenness against that kind of a God? That's part of who God is. If you don't want that kind of God, you don't want the God of the Bible. If you don't want to deal with that, you're just kind of picking and choosing and creating God in the ways that you're comfortable with him. But I believe Nahum wants us to see this side of God, but that's not all that Nahum is saying about God. And sometimes we miss this. We miss when God sent the flood, he had a tear in his eye. We miss that part. Because we're just looking for one thing and we want to say, I reject this God of anger. And Nahum doesn't let us do that because in verse 7, the same Lord who is angry is what? Good. He's good. How often is he good? All the time. He's good all the time. Listen to this. Even when he has to be angry. Reluctantly angry. God is still good at his core. He's a refuge in times of trouble. Can't help but think of Psalm 46. He is a refuge in times of trouble. He cares. This is the word he knows and loves. It's the intimate word of, of sexual relationships between a man and a woman. God cares for those who trust in him. But he has to pursue his foes, Nahum goes on in verse 8. And often he does that because they're hurting the ones who are trusting in him. And he goes after them because of his love for those who trust in him. And they plot against the Lord, we see in verse 9. I think it's important to see that they're against the Lord. Later, if you read chapters 2 and 3, you'll see a little chorus in there. Once in each chapter, it says, God says, I am against you, Nineveh. I am against you. And you might jump to the conclusion, oh, God is just arbitrarily picking sides. I want to suggest to you that God is against Nineveh because they're against him. They made a choice to go against him, and God, God says, I went after you in Jonah, I'm going to come after you with the prophecy of Nahum. And I'm slow to anger, but you've, you've really put me in a corner. And it's coming. They're against God, so God turns against them. 
And then if you'll notice in verses 11 through the end of the chapter, uh, the prophet goes back and forth. First to you, Nineveh. You keep going against the Lord, devising wicked plans. Then he speaks to Judah in 12 and 13. You know, they're, they're going to be destroyed, but I'm going to afflict you no more. And then in verse 14, he goes back to Nineveh. You're going to get destroyed. Then in verse 15, back to Judah. Look, there's some good news coming. You see, he's just going back and forth. In this context, this is good news for Judah, bad news for Nineveh. And God is able to kind of walk that just road between being good and angry. I think one of the problems in our dealing with God's anger is it's hard for us to be good when we're angry. But God is both. He's good and angry. That's the little play on my title. He's not good and angry. He's good and angry when he has to be, reluctantly, sadly, strangely, in an alien way. It's not at the core of his character. The Bible says that God is good. We sang about it. God is love. God is light. The Bible never says God is anger. Never says that. That's his alien, strange work. At the core, God is loving. You're probably saying, okay, I got the theology. So what? Here's the so what. I think there are three applications that I make about a good and angry God. One is toward us as individuals. I believe God in his goodness created us to be rightly related to him. But we went against him. And we, we deserve his anger, his wrath, because a holy God can't deal with the sinful, rebellious attitudes persisting in his creation. The bad news is that we are already under the wrath of God unless he does something about it. And here's the good news. He has done something about it. That the good and angry God is angry toward our sin, but he in his goodness sent his son to take our place, to pay the penalty for our sin, to take in some way on God's wrath for us, toward us, to take that on himself, on the cross. And when you think about it, the cross is where God's goodness and his anger come together in a crux like no other place in human history. And that's why, in a sense, both phrases of in Christ alone are right. One's not wrong and better than the other. They're both right. We can't sing them both at the same time. And the authors wanted us to have the balancing import of his wrath, being satisfied, because that was going on on the cross. And so we have... God working out a good news in the midst of our bad, desperate situation through the work of Jesus Christ, and only in Christ can that be cared for and that relationship be brought together. 
So my first encouragement to you is if, if you're here without being sure of your relationship with Jesus Christ, Nahum would want you to know God is angry towards sin. Don't keep going in that direction. But take his loving act in Jesus Christ and trust in him alone. And you'll see, you'll see the good and loving and eternally blessing side of God in a way that you'll never experience outside of Christ. I would say, don't think about continuing going against God. That is, is doomsday ahead. Don't go rebelling against God. But also, don't think you can come and stand before God on your own. I believe in you, God, and I'm here to show you how good I've been. Nahum would say, no, you better run to him as a refuge. You are not going to be able to stand before him on your own. Trust in Christ. So that John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him, trusts in him, runs to him as the refuge, would not perish. See, that's where the bad news comes in. Would not perish, but have everlasting life by trusting him. Are you against God, or are you trusting him? That's, Nahum wants you to answer that personally. But I also think there's a second area of application, that's nationally. We've just come through July 4th, celebrating our nation. That's a good thing. Um, my daughter Leah and her family just came from Washington, D.C., where there's monuments to our great leaders and the battles we've participated in, lives sacrificed for. That's a good thing. But I think we need to be careful. Hope you'll accept this word from a visiting pastor. We need to be careful to not equate our love for our country with our love for God, because there may be times when those don't fit together. I think it's important that we remember when we're thinking of ourselves as the superpower of this day, that that was Assyria in Nahum's day. And we need to have a little bit of humility to say, oh, well, wait a minute, how did we get here? And we might first check off, yeah, God's, God's blessed us, so let's not think it was all about us. While we're celebrating, God blessed us. But let's also remember that we've ripped off some folk along the way in our history. We haven't always done the things the way God would have had us do it lest we say specifically the natives who were here before we were here, how we treated them. The Africans we brought here and the way we treated them. We've, we've come to some of our superpower because we've done some wrong things and we need to remember that and confess that and be okay to recognize that. Even on top of God's blessing and good things, we've We've done some bad things. It's important for us to remember that God alone is the superpower. We are not the final, eternal, ultimate superpower. And the moment we think we are as a nation, 
we're leaving God out. When we get haughty, when we get arrogant, when we start to trust our military strength, when we start building our economy at the expense of the poor around the world, when we leave God out, friends, we need to be able to stand with our love for God and say, that's wrong. God, forgive us. Help us. Because if we keep going on against God, leaving him out, acting like he would not want us to act, how long do you think we'll be the superpower? Look at the superpowers of history. Assyria, Babylon, Rome, Nazi Germany, communist Soviet Union. Just start thinking through, where are they today? Take a deep breath. God is sovereign. He is the only superpower. And let's keep our priorities straight. I think Nahum would want us to pay attention. And don't think that God plays favorites. Just because here he's for Judah and against Nineveh, there was a time when he was for Nineveh, sent Jonah. There was a time when he's been against Judah. He afflicted them. God isn't playing favorites. He's got one standard, and everyone has to come up to that standard. So let's be careful when we think about our nation. And I think we can still celebrate a lot and give thanks for a lot, but let's not let it get carried away. Let's keep our love for God first and primary. Lastly, I'll say ultimately, that God is good and angry, not just toward individuals, not just toward nations, but he's good and angry toward his whole creation. He is upset at the way it has broken and gone away from him. I can honestly say that this world is not the way God created it to be. And someday, he's going to make a whole new heaven and a whole new earth and put it back together the way he intended. He's going to set things straight. He's going to make things right. And when that happens, all his enemies are going to be completely destroyed. Satan, demons, pain, sickness, disability, racism, poverty, sin in all its forms, death will all be done away with and will be no more, Revelation 21 tells us. New heaven and a new earth will finally, after quite a bit of destruction, there'll be newness the way God intended it to be. God is angry at this fallen, broken world. He doesn't like it, but he's, he's slow to put things back the way he want, wants it to be. But someday that's going to happen. I can say that with the same assurance that, that Nahum had when he stood and said, someday Nineveh's going down and Judah will be blessed. In the same way, there's a, there's a hard edge to God's judgment that makes it possible for those who trust in him to end up eternally in the good. So friends, we have a God that you may not completely, I certainly don't understand, completely, but we have a God who's revealed himself this way to us. Let's come to know him in his fullness. Nahum wants us to know he's good and angry. He's good 
and angry. He wants us to know this, in, and it's not just an Old Testament message. I believe it's the message of the whole Bible. It's the Apostle Paul in the New Testament who says, consider the kindness and sternness of God. What's he talking about? The kindness and the sternness of God. That's who he is. Consider his kindness and, and enter that kindness through trusting Christ, through trusting God in all his provisions. Enter that kindness and continue in that. Don't think just because you're there, everything's good and I can do whatever I want to. No, the Apostle Paul says, choose that kindness and continue in it. Keep choosing it because we can slip and we can come under the sternness. And I might just say, if you're feeling you're under God's sternness and his anger today, that too you need to receive as an expression of his love. He wants you to come back. And sometimes we just miss all the kind, good, loving messages, and the only way he can get our attention is to bring a little bit of the hard edge. But he wants to win us back. Don't keep going against him, because he's against us when we do that. Turn to him. Make things right with him, and you'll find him to be the good, loving God we want him to be. Let's pray. God, would you continue to reveal yourself to us. Help us to see who you are through the prophets, through Christ, through the New Testament, to see that you are the God who is sovereign, who is immortal, invisible, the only wise, true, good, loving, angry, reluctantly, God. We worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Our hymn is number 10, is it? Closing hymn. So take your hymnal and let's stand to sing of God being immortal, invisible. Number 10.